Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. So welcome to HashiCast. It's a real pleasure to have Anne Curry on the show today. Anne is the Chief Strategic Officer at Container Solutions and is based here in London. Anne's got some incredible experience in the industry. She's founded some incredibly interesting startups and has got a very, very long and distinguished career. Of recent years, Anne has been chairing conferences and talking about ethics and technology. I think this is a fascinating subject and something that I hope we're going to talk about today. Anne, I absolutely cannot do you justice. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, Nick, thank you very much for that introduction. I, it is a pleasure for me to be here too. So I've been in the tech industry as an engineer and then as a basically somebody who persuades engineers to do things for nearly 25 years. Uh, for the first 10, 15 years of my career, I was mostly working on large C servers, um, email servers, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, lots of Microsoft back office products. Um, then I moved into e-commerce and I worked on some of the earliest e-commerce platforms. And then for the past five years or so, I've been working on operations, technology, um, containers, orchestrators, that kind of thing, and looking at where we're, where we're all going, where we're heading to. Um, so Nick alluded to the fact that I'm involved in a lot of conferences, which I am these days. I help organize quite a few conferences. Uh, over the past few years, I've been helping to organize QCon London, for example. And um, as part of that, I realized that I really wanted to start talking about something different in tech and finding out a lot more about it myself, uh, getting it talked about at conferences and actually just starting to get the ball rolling on discussing it. Uh, and that was ethics and technology. Uh, and I can tell you, if you if you like, Nick, why why I decided that that was something I was interested in. Yeah, absolutely. Please do. Uh, um, well, you might remember about eighteen months ago, there was a chap called James Damore at Google who got into a lot of trouble for writing a uh, a note a memo about how women shouldn't be in technology, and it was fine that there was no diversity, and it was. The whole thing was was a bit um, uh, caused a bit of a stir, but interestingly, the part of it that that most struck me was the part that didn't cause a stir. Uh, Demore said, oh, "Well, the reason why women shouldn't be in technology is because women are more interested in people, and technology is all about things, and so uh, should, so that's it's, it's natural that technology should be full of men and not women." And there was loads of debates and arguments afterwards about how um, women are interested in things too. Women aren't interested in people. Women are also just as interested in things as men. And very little conversation about the, what I would consider considerably more interesting uh, discussion points, which is, is technology really only about things and not about people? Because we are the biggest industry in the world. We have the most money of any uh, any sector uh, at the moment. The top six companies by market capitalization in the world are tech companies and proper tech companies, not just in a kind of every company is a tech company kind of a way. Can we afford to be to consider ourselves to be something which is only interested in things, not really interested in people? And when someone says that, not even question it as an assumption. So that's that's how I got into into being interested in this. I thought I'd try out at conferences whether techies would actually come to talks that were at least half about people, about society, as well as technology. And as it turned out, it was extremely popular. We do have an appetite for talking about these things and thinking about them in tech. That's fascinating. And and I think something really, really pertinent. Now, for... Um, for some of our listeners out there who maybe don't really understand by what, what what you kind of mean by ethics and technology, could you could you give us the one hundred and one? What is ethics with relation to to technology? Well, it's a controversial subject, 
uh, which is, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to get a whole load of speakers in to talk at conferences so I could learn what their different perspectives were. But to my mind, it nets down to one overriding concept. Now, whenever you talk about tech ethics, well, at least 18 months ago, people would immediately segue into the trolley problem, you know, who is more who is of more value to society, three nuns or two babies and a member of the royal family. It's, and it's completely subjective. There's, there's no consistency amongst individuals or amongst societies who is the most valuable. And I hate that because I don't think that ethics needs to be subjective and I don't think it should be subjective. And I don't think that's the low hanging fruit for us. I think, in fact, we're much better off looking at a concept that is well known in the oil and gas industry, the building industry, the civil engineering industry, which is duty of care. Uh, duty of care is a legal responsibility that makers of products have to ensure, to, to make their best efforts to ensure that their products don't harm any, anybody, don't harm the users and they don't harm anybody else. Um, up until now, the tech industry has not really been under duty of care legislation. We, therefore, we haven't really thought that much about it. But actually, uh, in the UK last year, they announced that AI and machine learning were going to come under duty of care legislation. Um, and so suddenly, we are now ethically required to not harm our users, and we are also legally required to not do so. That, that's so that's really interesting. I never even considered the fact that technology wouldn't wouldn't be sort of covered by any form of, of legislation. I mean, if I built a house and it collapsed or if I designed a car and it had a fault which which severely injured somebody, then I'd be I'd be responsible to to sort of financial penalties through through legislation and potentially also even imprisonment as as a, as a responsible party. Why do you think it's taken so long to to get to the point where we're looking at this in the same light with with technologies? Is it just because for governments technologies maybe an under an an industry which is not understood? I think. Partly. Um, one of the things is that duty of care never covered financial loss. So you can sue the pants off someone for knocking you down and physically breaking your leg, but you can't sue under the same duty of care legislation for losing all your money. And tech was always seen as something where the downside was inconvenience, uh, loss of earnings, uh, loss, of, um, uh, loss of actual physical money, but it wasn't seen as loss of physical power, loss of arms and legs and heads. But with IoT, and also increasingly potentially with machine learning and um, AI, that, that more physical threat has arrived. And so has so have threats that are not necessarily directly physical. So, uh, Say you got turned down for a job because you were the the computer reckoned that you were lazy for some reason from some machine learning bug, and it said that is that that's doing you a lot of damage. That's that's uh, increasingly I think that will come under duty of care as well as the computer broke my leg, which of course might happen with IoT. So let, let's dig into uh, this kind of area of, of sort of data misuse and, and artificial intelligence. This is, seems to be something which on one side can have real benefits to the consumer, but on the other side can, can also be used as a way of exploiting the consumers. Uh, what, one such example I can think of is the, the new tool that Google talked about last year, which can use Google Assistant for doing things like booking a restaurant. Like the system calls a restaurant on your behalf and makes a, an attempt to make a booking. Now, I really like this idea, not necessarily for, for booking a restaurant, but maybe for something like getting a haircut. If anybody's seen me recently, they've probably noticed that my hair's getting a little bit out of control. And that was purely down to my, my sort of procrastination around just phoning somebody up and booking, booking an appointment. But what are the ethical implementation, uh, implications of such a system? I mean, 
if the the receiver of the call doesn't doesn't realize that it's it's AI which is calling, then that could put them in a very sort of uncomfortable situation. You could feel duped or how, how, how do companies need to kind of handle these things? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because as a, I'm, this is one of the areas of ethics where I don't yet necessarily have an opinion. It's interesting that if you look at, I would say, the two people in uh, in history, in the world now, who have done the most thinking on this subject, I would say it was historically Philip K. Dick, author of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, who said that he considered the point at which we can no longer tell the difference between whether we were talking to a human or a bot. And he didn't mean AIs here. He meant things that were just masquerading as humans, chatbots, that that would be uh, an almost an existential crisis for humanity. Uh, somebody who agrees with him is the um, author, is Steve Warswick, the author of Mitsuku Chatbots, which is currently the world's best human emulating robot. He's very keen that we do not lie to people and tell, tell them that either they're talking to humans when they're in fact talking to a bot, or he thinks it's just as bad to pretend that a bot is artificially intelligent, like Sophia, for example, because it's a lie. So he doesn't like the idea that the entire industry of chatbots could be based on effectively lying to people. So on the one hand, I think that's true. Lying is a bad thing. Uh, We don't really want to start lying to people and misleading them into thinking they're talking to a human when they're actually talking to a a bot is definitely lying and therefore that is unethical. At the same time, if I was running a hair salon and I got more bookings because people used their phone to phone me up and book. And that that was easier and cheaper than me putting together some kind of booking system, um, online booking system, then I would feel quite comfortable with the idea. So the irony is that actually the people who are going to be lied to are probably the people who are going to make the most money out of this or have get the most benefits out of it. So I, I have no idea. I suspect, I have a horrible suspicion that we'll just get used to being lied to or we'll just stop assuming that the people we're talking to are necessarily human, which is a different problem. I suppose in the good case, though, um, around the sort of the, the Google 2, which I do think is wonderful, um, I suppose as long as it announces itself. So when you pick up the phone, if it, if it immediately announces itself and says, this is the Google automated uh, assistant um, making a request on behalf of Nick Jackson, then then you're not, it's not lying anymore, is it? it it's being very sort of plain and clear about what it is and what it is trying to achieve, which which I think is, is, is okay. And, and as you said, the, the benefits to business could be could be great because certainly if I have an easier way to keep booking a repeat hair appointment, I'm going to get my hair cut more often, which means I'm going to spend more money at the salon, which has got to be a win for everybody, uh, mainly me probably. But <laughs> what, what about abuse of this technology though? I mean, one of the things that I find rather disturbing is, is the frequency of cold calls that I seem to be receiving from automated systems recently. And, and this is, seems to be predominantly around the, 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 the fact that um, allegedly I've had a car accident recently. And um, do I want to, to sort of do the whole no win, no fee claim thing? This worries me a lot because I can recognize that this is, AI almost immediately at the moment, just because of the quality of it. But, you know, what about the elderly or vulnerable members of a community? If you are using this for for um, for a sales pers- perspective to try and defraud somebody, how how can the industry combat this? Does the kind of the, the regulation and the uh, the legislation around duty of care apply in this instance? Well. Um, well- Actually, I'll, I'll just reply to your 
um, statement earlier about would, would it be okay if Google told you that it was a bot? I think yes, I totally agree. And in fact, that's the that is the approach that Mitsuku, uh, that Steve Warswick and Mitsuku take. He's very very clear. Mitsuku will always say, "I'm a bot. I'm not a real person. I'm a bot." And I think that's that's absolutely fine. On cold calls, automated cold calls, I mean, that is already illegal. <laughs> uh, most people will have will have um, registered. A lot of people, I do. I get told tons of cold calls, even though I've registered that I don't want to receive them. So we're already in the realms of uh, illegal behaviour. So probably legislating on top of that to stop people using artificial artificially generated voices to step up the number of cold calls that they can possibly do. I don't know. It's a difficult one. My suspicion is, I mean, I, I, I get so many cold calls at home. I hardly ever answer my main host phone anymore. I just make outbound calls. So um, to a certain extent, it's in the best interests of the telephone companies to, to stop that because eventually I'm just going to stop having a, uh, using my phone. I, I'm going to get rid of the standing charge just use my mobile but i think i think one of the sort of the the, the maybe the gray areas though is that i mean the the system that we have in the united kingdom the telephone preference service which allows you to register your phone number and make a, a clear defined statement say i do not want to want to receive unsolicited calls and then obviously every organization based in the UK who is making cold calls has to respect that list. If not, they're, they're subject to financial penalties. But what if I was operating from an organization outside of the UK? So I could still use like um, voice over IP to have a, a, a destination number, which masqueraded like it was coming from the UK, but potentially I'm not subject because I'm, I'm not... Um, or sort of a, a UK operating company to the, the penalties. Do we need some form of global sort of legislation or I, I, I don't know how you can sort of handle because, you know, people will always try and find a way around these sort of things. And with the internet, that's never been easier than before with, with the global reach. I agree. Uh, I think that legislation only goes so far. Uh, legislation is useful for for controlling large companies who actually want to stay inside the law. So it's useful for controlling Facebook, for Google, Microsoft. It's not actually all that useful for controlling some uh, dodgy operation in the Ukraine who actually have no, who, who don't really care whether they're breaking the law or not. So um, legislation is useful up to a point, but to a certain extent, we're just all going to have to get used to this world in which people can con us in new ways, I think. It's an interesting problem. And maybe when you think about it, ultimately there is an individual who's building these systems. So maybe we, we can talk a little bit about, about me as a developer who, who might be building those, those systems. Is that, what can I do? How as as a as an individual developer, what, what are the things that I can do to maybe raise my concerns or not build those systems in the first place? I uh, well, I would say the first thing you can do. This is coming across again and again with the people that I'm bringing in to talk at, at conferences is to pay attention. So the the first mistake we make, the biggest mistake we make as technologists is that we don't even notice that we're doing something dodgy because we've got heads down and we're just programming. We don't step back and think, well, actually, what is this going to be used for? And are we happy about that? Do we think it's well enough tested for that? Do we think that we've put all the safeguards in place to make that a, a safe use? So step away, the, the first thing is step away from the code. So I had a... Um, uh, a, a very an excellent speaker at the tech ethics conference that I ran uh, in July in London last year called Cory Crider, and she was a journalist and a um, a human rights lawyer. She came to, in to talk about the dangers of uh, drone strikes hitting innocent people in the Yemen. It was a very <laughs> um, frightening talk, but anyway. 
Uh, she updated us about all of that. And somebody in the question said, well, what, what can we do? How could we avoid working on these evil projects? And she said, well, what you should do is read the newspaper. If you want to know what's going on in the world and you want to know how what you're doing will fit in with the world in general, read the newspaper. Have a think about who your customers are. Have a think about what your products do. Have a think about how they might be used in the world at large. And then if you're not happy about it, say something. I know that um, that we're all very reticent in the tech industry and we don't really like to speak up. But quite often, well, most people in the tech industry, almost everyone that I've ever met is well-meaning, pleasant, um, will do the right thing if it occurs to them. Nine times out of 10, if we're doing something wrong, it's because we haven't noticed or we haven't really thought about it, or we've maybe kind of slightly been brushing it under the carpet. If someone says something, then everybody's forced to step back and consider it. And, and that is the best thing you can possibly do. Just say something to your coworkers, to your boss, to your friends, to your family. Do you know, I'm a bit worried about this. What do you think? Uh, this is how this fits into the larger picture. So, one, be aware, pay attention, and two, say something when you see it. And I don't think anybody has a problem from, you know, if you, if you raise a, a genuine concern, uh, I, th- I think that's a good thing. And I think I agree with you that people shouldn't be afraid to, to do so. Would you kind of say that that's your own sort of personal philosophy as well as advice for others for, for dealing? Because I think these... These situations can be rather uncomfortable if it's the the first time that you're approaching the subject. Yes. I mean, one way to do it is to talk to somebody who you know will be more comfortable raising it than you. Um, There are always people who are fairly easy to talk to in your organization who you trust to, to take on a a concern or a question for you, um, an issue that you've noticed. If there aren't, then actually you need to think about whether that's a company you want to be working with, because it's probably not going to do your career any good in the long run if there's literally nobody you trust amongst your colleagues. Um, But hopefully there is. So even if you're the kind of person who's quite shy and doesn't necessarily want to speak up, doesn't want to make a fuss, you can always go and have a chat with someone you trust who is less worried about making a fuss and they will raise it for you. That's some really good advice. And, and I think the good thing about this industry at the moment is that th- there are a, a lot of jobs around and, and I think people always have choice and sometimes maybe you can exercise that choice. So it's, it's, it's definitely good advice, but I think you're right. You know, the key thing is you have to actually recognize and understand that you might be doing something unethical. Yeah, I mean, that's actually... I suspect that's where 95% of the problems occur is that we are, but we don't notice that we are because just because we haven't thought about it. And I, uh, I know I totally agree with what you're saying about we're in an industry where it's quite straightforward potentially to get another job if you're good at what you do. And I know we all doubt that we are, but most of us are, but that isn't the first step. The first step is just to say something and you don't even have to say it yourself. Just say it to somebody who you trust. Yeah, that's that is some really great advice, and and I'm going to um, get the 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 link to the the video that you you mentioned. It, I, I'm thinking it is recorded. Then we can put that in in the podcast's notes because I'm sure everybody would really enjoy to watch to watch that. Oh yeah. <laughs> so let's let's take a slightly different slant on on ethics and something which is maybe more commonplace and something which probably affects every single one of us. So I was I was doing a little bit of research and I was sort of looking at a report, a couple of reports. So according to Forbes, US server farms use the equivalent of 34 coal-powered power plants. And this is the equivalent of 3% of all global electricity used just to power these server farms. The, the kind of the predictions in place are that this could rise to sort of 10% by 2025. And, and I've seen numbers which are predicting even, even faster, faster growth. I suppose one of the core problems with this power is that clean electricity is really not prevalent, not, not everywhere in the world. Certainly not in, in the UK. We, we generate a, a relatively small percentage of our electricity from 
from uh, sustainable sources. What, what can we do to, to protect the environment? How do we, we sort of get a grip on, on this electricity consumption? Yes. So this is, oddly enough, it was, uh, this is related to uh, how we met Nick many years ago when I was working on a startup for energy efficiency in data centers. And um, it became clear to me over time that energy efficiency isn't really the problem because actually moving to the cloud, you get massive improvements in efficiency. So uh, a cloud data center is broadly speaking, five to 10 times more efficient than an on-prem data center. But that doesn't mean that when you move there, you use five to 10 times less power. In fact, you just start up more machines. It's, called, it's something called Jevons paradox, where the more efficient and easier to use things become, the more of them we use. So fundamentally, we keep improving the efficiency of hardware and at the same time, just consuming more electricity because we run more of it. And uh, as you said, um, I think it was Mozilla Foundation reported earlier this year that the data centers worldwide produce about as much carbon emissions as the aviation industry. And uh, Huawei and Cisco are predicting that uh, the, the data center capacity will increase four to five-fold within the next five years, which I don't think is a, an unrealistic expectation. So if we don't act, we could end up producing inadvertently, because we never think about this, inadvertently producing another four aviation industries in terms of climate change. And I don't think any of us actually want that. We just don't think about it. Um, the right way to go about this is, oddly enough, the way that uh, Google and Azure are already going pretty heavily, which is to commit to running all of their servers everywhere on 100% renewable energy. Uh, now, they use offsetting, which has some issues, but nonetheless, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, AWS are only at 50%, which means that as the AWS data center capacity grows and it is growing at incredible rates, so do their uh, carbon emissions. Uh, they grow at exactly the same rate as they themselves are growing. So there is, there is an issue here that we need to address. And I think, oddly enough, it, it came out of the work that I'd done on ethics as the easiest and the most low-hanging fruit for the tech industry to decide that we were going to host all of our servers everywhere on renewable power. Now, everybody always comes up and says, oh, yes, but if we take other people's renewable power, then that won't be something else. We'll just end up taking the renewable power that somebody else was going to use. But I have to hope that capitalism does work and that if we become a major consumer and we increase demand for renewable power for our data centers, which could, of course, be entirely renewably powered um, because they are just electricity, then we will get it. I mean, I, I, I was going to say, I, I love that idea. I mean, I'm, I'm um, a very keen cyclist. I, I love the, the great outdoors. I, I desperately don't want it to disappear and to, to end up living in a, a desert six months of the year and some crazy sort of Arctic winter the, the other six months of the year. I also don't like the idea of punitive measures. So you could potentially legislate around this stuff and say that um, carbon emissions for data centers are, are, are taxable or something. But what, what about things like, you know, that I have a Nest thermostat and it sends me an email every month and it says, you've used X amount more or X amount less power uh, than, than you did last month. And congratulations for, for getting like leafs for being energy efficient on these days. Could we maybe apply a, a similar approach to our, our consumption of, of servers? Because often, the, as you sort of said, the, the, the financial impact of running more servers it doesn't directly affect us, but but as individuals who love the environment, if we could see that, wow, if we shut down three of those servers, we could have uh, offset so many kilograms of, of carbon emissions, that, that might tap a different nerve. Uh, yes, it's interesting because you, you've, you've gone back to actually, oddly enough, the startup that, that we met when I was doing uh, three, four years ago. But 
And I love the idea of doing it. I love the idea of turning off machines that are unused, improving the efficiency of data centers because they are massively inefficient. But interestingly, if you go into the cloud, a lot of that is done for you. So AWS does very well at reusing your um, uh, your idle capacity. Um, things like uh, Kubernetes, Nomad, all of those orchestrators have massively improved the efficiency of the use of physical resources in data centers. But the trouble is we just keep using more. We, I, I, the more I look into this, and though I would love a technical solution, and a technical solution was absolutely the way that I thought that we would beat this, in the end, I think it's more of a social solution. We just need to say, look, fill your boots, be as inefficient as you like in a data center. As long as it's powered renewably, you can do anything you like. You can do Bitcoin mining, don't mind. Do anything you like, but it has to be powered renewably. If we go, we have, I think we have to go for the source here because any efficiency improvements we make, we just turn into more use. Yeah, it, I, I can... I mean, I've, I'm guilty myself. Don't, um, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> everybody's guilty. guilty. And, and I really loved the, um, <laughs> the, when you, when you were working on, on things and, and trying to work out, is it possible to, to, to sort of run services and understand their utilization and therefore to be able to more densely pack them onto the, the servers that you're running? Because if, if you can cut your server load down by, by 50%, then that not only helps your, your pocket, but, but also it, it's great for the environment. I have an idea for you. Here's the idea. I'm going to pitch the idea of a startup to you. So what we're going to do is we're going to start our own cloud. Uh, because it's easy, you know. You just need mm. a couple of servers. It, it's no, there's no complexity in building a cloud. But we're going to have a very different payment model. So what we're going to do is we are going to reuse spare CPU cycles. So for example, if I pay for a core, but I mean only using a tenth of a core, I'm going to agree that those other nine tenths of that core can be reutilized by somebody else. So in effect, what's, what's happening is that workload is, is getting balanced and, and shared. As a, as a sort of a hosting provider, I'm still generating the same revenue. So that gives me the ability and, and incentive that I can then reduce my, my electricity consumption. Now, obviously, you're not going to be so happy if you're paying for a call, but you're only getting a tenth of a call. So what we will do is we will, any spare cycles, we're going to make a donation to uh, to Greenpeace or, or somebody like that. And um, we'll, we will offset your your utilization by by charitable donation. What do you think? Let, let's get, get building. Well, it's not vastly different to some of the AWS instances in terms of, I mean, there is the, oh, and I can't remember, is it T2? Uh, the one where you say you're only going to use up to 10%, but you can burst above 10% on the CPU because you know that somebody else is going to use the core and your costs are therefore reduced. And it's very popular, I believe. Is that T2? Oh, I can never remember. Um, so it's not, it certainly is a business model. It's, it's a business model that AWS have already embraced. Um, uh, and they just use it to cut your bills. It's, it's, I, I don't object to it. But I think in the long run, we are just going to have to go for the, um, uh, for, uh, we're going to have to, to tackle the means of production here. So, for example, uh, one of the um, speakers that I had at QCon last week was a climate change scientist from Greenland. Uh, and he was pitching us all on building our data centers in Greenland, where the um, Ice melts runoff from glaciers provides absolute guaranteed 24-7 totally green power. So the data center in Greenland and uh, you've got 100% uh, green data centers. And I thought, wow, that sounds absolutely marvelous. And that is the future of how our data centers should be run, just directly off as far as possible um, renewable power. And I think society-wise, as a, as a sector, is what we should be demanding. And I'm, I'm also hoping 
as as you mentioned in a point earlier, that, that the actual the demand for renewables, maybe from the the tech sector and certainly from from server farms, could actually promote just the the generic sort of increase in renewables in the industry. Because certainly we, we live here on a a little island. That island is also pretty windy, and um, we've got a lot of potential which we don't really sort of take advantage of to generate a lot more power from from wind and part of the reason is is just public opinion that whilst i think the majority of people believe in renewable energy they don't like the look of wind turbines how 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 can we kind of sort of cover some of those issues because i i think the two do go potentially hand in hand and i maybe we're maybe getting a little bit off track on on ethics here and uh but but I think it's an important sort of side segue, right? Yes, the the element of at what point do you just coerce people? Do you say, well, tough? I, I, as it turns out, I, I live on the east coast and I'm surrounded by sea offshore wind turbines. Oh, I like them. I think they look good, and it reminds me. I think, well, that's how we live. That's that's what humanity is. We use a lot of electricity, and we need to generate it. So. Um, to a certain extent, we just need to get over that and get used to the fact that wind turbines turbines are required. In some ways, um, China have it easy because they can just do it and they don't have to worry so much about what's uh, what people's opinions are. And of course, in, in China, everybody's desperate to get the air clean. So in fact, it isn't even necessarily terribly uh, controversial to want more um, uh, more wind farms and um, other forms of electricity generation. And in London, you know, we should be complaining more about the air quality, but it's not quite as obvious here as it is in Beijing. Well, the air quality is terrible in, in, in London on, on certain days. We, we have very, very high pollution, which is, is really not good for your health. And I, and I think this is another thing, right, that you sort of, I, I, get, I agree with you. I don't have a problem with wind turbines. I've I don't think they're ugly. I, I quite like the fact that I can see power being generated and that power is being clean. But um, I'd much rather have a w- look at a wind turbine, which may slightly spoil my view, than than end up with with, with some problem with my my sort of lungs or respiratory system, which is due to pollution. Mm. <laughs> yes, so would I. <laughs> and I think most of us would if we were if we were really really reminded that actually. And it isn't necessarily us who are most affected, the people who will be complaining about wind turbines, it's, it's children. Uh, I, I find the, um, the recent uh, Greta, the Swedish schoolgirl with, uh, with her plat, who has been speaking at Davos at the UN, all these kind of things about how uh, children are affected by uh, climate change, but we don't really have much, uh, they don't have much say in what we do about it. I think that's been very affecting and very a very good reminder that it is our responsibility to sort these problems out because we aren't the ones who are ultimately going to suffer the most for them, which is actually the very definition of ethics. If it's if you're just doing it in your own to your own benefits, then arguably that's not really ethics. If you're doing it for somebody else's good, when you know that you're going to do them harm. Um, a duty of care also applies to younger people. If we, as an industry, are throwing out as much uh, climate change gases as aviation and doing nothing about it, then I think that really does mean that we are infringing our duty of care. And and I think there's a, something to remember there as well for all of us, that we are just the custodians of the present. The, the, the future is going to be inherited by somebody else. And, uh, you know, I don't have children myself, but I care a lot about what the sort of the future generations are going to grow up with and, and, and the hope that they'll have a good quality of life. And, and, and I think pollution is, is probably one of the, the, the bigger, biggest risks to that. Yes, I agree. I don't have children either, but uh, and I'm amazed that, that people who do are not more worried about it. <laughs> it's difficult, I suppose. I think there's, there's a lot of things to, to, to worry about. And I think people kind of pick and choose uh, which things, but maybe that's why uh, we as an industry can spearhead this, why we can kind of take this, uh, take this on and say, we are going to be environmental. We are going to 
create a better life for, for, for people through technology, but we're going to do it in a way that doesn't actually harm them. And, and maybe that's, that's something in tech we can, we can really spearhead and, and, and help people with. Yes, and I think we have a special duty in tech because it's an industry that is so little understood by the populace. People complain about new runways and planes and they think about their air travel and all that kind of stuff, but they don't think about data centers because almost nobody knows they exist. Um, Even in the tech industry, we don't really have a, we aren't massively aware of them. We don't think about them. And therefore, it's it's our responsibility to make sure that they are thought about when generally people aren't, aren't aware of them. Maybe that's the next thing that uh, we should get. We've got the, the the screen time app. This is for you, uh, Tim Apple, over in uh, <laughs> <laughs> at Apple. But what we want is I want to see how much CO two my browsing consumption on my phone has showed has caused me every week, and I want that estimated by data centers and not just recharging the battery on my phone. Maybe that'll help to to kind of kickstart that awareness. Yeah, it would be nice if people were more aware um, that that computers aren't just magic. They run on electricity. Uh, The same way that planes fly on fuel, computers run on fuel too. And as we've already discussed, not always the nicest kind of fuel. Coal is uh, really not the sort of stuff you want to be generating your power from. Yes, absolutely. Oh, um, before we finish on this, I do want to point out that Right now, there are very good options for people on hosting that they tend to be unaware of. They are not the default options. But um, if you want to host sustainably, if you want to host with your uh, energy use offset, at least offset for now, probably replaced entirely in the future, you should either host on Google, where everything is 100% offset. Azure, similarly, everything is 100% offset. Some AWS regions, not the default ones, but some. So if you host in AWS Dublin, Frankfurt, Canada, or Oregon, then your emissions are 100% offset. If you if you host anywhere else, uh, not. That, that's not the case. So if you make a decision, I know that nobody's going to move there machines once they've got them in a region, very difficult, lock in with your state. You're not, you're not likely to move around. So if you're in a region and you can't do anything about it, just raise a ticket, say, I desperately want this region to become more renewable than it currently is. If you can move though, and you can choose, if you're putting in new, um, new infrastructure, new hardware, then choose a region which is sustainable. So as I say, Google, Azure, or AWS Dublin, Frankfurt, Oregon, or Canada. Some great advice there. And, and everybody listening, please, please, please take that and, and give that a give that a go because we can we can definitely make a change. Let's uh let's take a little segue. And one of the things that we we, we like to talk about on on HashiCast, which interests me incredibly, and I, and I hope interests the listeners too, is how our guests ended up in this industry. So I've been doing some social media stalking on on you, uh, and it says that you studied mathematics and statistics at, at uh, sorry, mathematics and physics at, at university. Mm. How, the, the, there is obviously a, um, a synergy there, but how did you end up directly in tech rather than sort of just going pure on maths or, or working in a, a sort of a lab or something like that? Uh, well, back in the early 90s, I... Um, I was a, an intern uh, at CERN, the, uh, the current home of the Large Hadron Collider. This was before the Large Hadron Collider. This was the Large Electron-Positron Collider when I was there, but it was similar. So it, collect, it, it, uh, it smashed together electrons and positrons rather than um, protons and neutrons. But um, while I was there... I was exposed to the early internet um, because obviously the internet was developed at CERN a few years earlier than that. And it was was only there a few months, but it was very, very clear that the future of physics and the future of everything was more going to be around this technology stuff than it was what was going on in physics. Um, And Interestingly, in theoretical physics, very little progress has, in fact, been made in the past 25 years, I would say. Uh, Whereas in technology, 
everything has changed completely. And, and so, so, so I made the decision then that I thought that the future was going to be more driven by technology than it was by theoretical physics. And so that's where I went. Uh, I got a job at a um, company that took on new graduates and trained them from nothing in computer programming. And that was, yeah, that was 1994 I started and uh, I have never looked back. That, that's, that's actually really wonderful. It's, uh, it is really kind of nice to, to see that that inspiration, which moved you into technology. And I, I know from talking to you in the past and how much you love it as well. So it's, it's been a, a, a career move that I think, um, or a career decision, which was absolutely the right one for for you and uh, that's that's fantastic now with with technology though and and i might be speaking personally here but i find that i get like just absolutely absorbed in it to to an extent that i spend my time working in technology I will spend my free time reading in technology or tinkering with technology and I'm not entirely certain that that's particularly healthy, but you, you have some different passions as well. I've, I've kind of noticed that you're rather an accomplished painter. Talk to us about your, your interests outside technology. Uh, yes. Well, yeah, yeah, I do have a, a bit of a, uh, eclectic mix of interests. So yes, so, uh, obviously I'm very interested in love technology, but that's not all I, I look into because if you only look at the detailed tech, you don't step back and think about the big picture and think about how it fits into things uh, more widely. So I also paint, which I enjoy. And in many ways, it's quite similar to, to, technology because I, I paint in oils, I do a lot of planning, I paint in layers. It, it's not actually, oddly enough, that dissimilar to the way that you would plan and design and deliver a computer program, uh, especially in the old days. It's a bit more painting, oddly enough, is a bit more waterfall, <laughs> a bit less agile in the way that you do it. Um, but uh, I also write. So um, I Right now at the moment, I'm on a, uh, a four-week sabbatical from Container Solutions to finish my first science fiction novel. So uh, that is, is just as utterly, in fact, it's, it's exactly like writing code. You, you get into doing it, you're editing or you're writing, and then four hours later, you look up and you think, oh my God, I haven't had anything to eat or drink for four hours. I could barely get up out of the seat. It's, it has all of the same things. The same kind of concentrated mindset, getting into the flow. It doesn't really matter if it's writing or art or computer programming. It's very much the same. The same. But that's fascinating. And hey, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to reading the book. And if you, um, <laughs> if you have like a, 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 you know, a pre-sales link or anything like that, we'll put that into the, the, the podcast links as well, because I'm positive the listeners are going to love to read as well once you're, uh, once you're done. Uh, hopefully so. Hopefully it won't be rubbish. But I keep reminding myself, and this is a good thing to be reminded about generally. This is the first time I've written any nonfiction, uh, any not any fiction at all. Written plenty of nonfiction. Um, but sometimes you have to do things and put them out there, even if they're rubbish. To be honest, the best possible result is that the first book I write, so the one I'm writing at the moment, is the worst book I ever write. Because it's better to get better. So. It doesn't matter if what you do, and, and I would never have started painting if I worried about the fact that the first, that for quite a long time, you're terrible. When you're learning new things for quite a long time, you're terrible. And that is just how it is. You have to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. And eventually you'll get good. But um, if you're deterred by the fact that your first few attempts aren't very good, then you will never get good. Some wonderful advice there for, for every aspect of life and uh, something I believe in myself as well. So, And it has been an absolute pleasure having you on HashiCast. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to us, especially right now. I'm, I'm probably distracting you from your, your, your writing. <laughs> I have one final question for you. And, and this is our... I suppose somewhat traditional and less serious question, mm. but 
if you were a painter, mm. which painter would you be and why? Ah, now, uh, if I was a painter, which painter would I be? I would be, um, oh, Gosh, uh, now it's terrible, isn't it? Because now the name of the painter, who I know extremely well, has fled from my mind. Um, the chap who does the uh, the the very very um, bold squares, um, Dutch chap. Oh, um, yes, I know exactly uh, who you mean. Mondrian. 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 No. Yes, yes, Mondrian. I would be Mondrian. And the reason why I'd be Mondrian is because if you look back through what he did through his career, his style changed very significantly. So he was constantly changing what he did. So he started off quite traditionally, then he started to look into uh, trees and the, the, the shapes that they made, and then that kind of evolved over the course of his entire career to what he did finally at the end, which was focusing entirely on balance and composition and stri stripping all that back to nothing uh, and you know, he came up with this his later famous work. Um, but what I liked about him was he progressed, he changed, he did new things. And everything he did was quite radical. It was quite interesting. It was a little bit different. And then finally, it was extremely different. It doesn't, he became massively successful, but I don't think that's actually the, the important thing. I think what was important was that he pushed himself and did different stuff that other people weren't doing and learned from it. And that's, that's what I would like to do. And I think you also win the prize for the most eloquent answer <laughs> to our uh, slightly less serious question there. That was super interesting. I want to say thank you again. It has genuinely been a pleasure and I'm really, really looking forward to um, speaking to you again in person very, very soon. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I always love talking to you, Nick. It was good to speak to you. Cheerio. You've been listening to HashiCast with your hosts, Nick and Mishra. Today's guest has been Anne Curry from Container Solutions. Special mention to HashiConf, which is coming up in July in Amsterdam and September in Seattle. Grab those tickets before they're gone.